Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the NRAMP Podcast. The views expressed on this show are those of the host and in no way reflective of an endorsement by any entity I am affiliated with via employment or membership. Uh, we're going to discuss, uh, like you saw on the top of the show, a lot of you know controversial and current event topics. Um, and I just want to make sure that nobody uh, mistakes this as any sort of endorsement or, uh, you know, representative of any organization I'm affiliated with. And I'll just leave it at that. So let's get started. Um, as I'm sure many of you have noticed, uh, with everything that's been going on in the world right now, there is a bit of a cry for um, this Texas shooter uh, to be labeled a terrorist. Um, and I think it's important that we really, really, really understand the distinction between what is and is not terrorism. So by definition, terrorism means that when I have gone out here and enacted a violent act, I have a political goal or aim behind it. Um, by definition, terrorism is the use of violent acts to frighten people to obtain a political goal. So the one key distinction between a terrorist and a regular you know, tragic event is that the terrorist enacted their violent act with the intent of achieving a political aim. And it doesn't matter how many people you killed, your body count isn't what make something terrorism it's the intent behind your actions so if i go out here and i decide that i'm going to you know uh shoot somebody at kroger because they cut me off or shoot up you know people because they're in my parking space or do something like that it's a tragic act um it's fucked up i shouldn't have done it um it's horrific and it's gun violence but it's not by definition terrorism terrorism does not happen until my action has a political aim tied to it uh, so there's no, you know, that being said, there is a problem, right? Because in general, when white people commit violent crimes, there is a hesitancy to label those people in certain ways. Um, Dylan Roof is a perfect example of this. He was not charged with terrorism. By definition, what he did is 100% without a shadow of a doubt and no debate or discussion, a terrorist act. You cannot debate that. He had a political aim. He murdered a bunch of people with the goal of achieving that political aim. And his motives and everything else was a hate crime. And it was also terrorism. The difference is in this Texas shooting, what this kid did, or I mean, he's not a kid, but what this asshole did was he had a domestic dispute with somebody in his family, went to their church. And based on a long pattern history of violent tendencies, mental health issues, everything else, just indiscriminately murdered people. Indiscriminate murder is not the same thing as terrorism. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a distinction between the two. Now, when you look at the Vegas situation, when you look at the Texas situation, we do not know the motive yet of the Vegas shooter. Um, and until we do at this point, it's just a tragedy. And that's the thing is something tragic by definition is an event causing great suffering, destruction, and devastation, uh, such as a serious accident, crime, or natural catastrophe. What happened is tragic, but in these cases, it's not terrorism. Um, it doesn't excuse the way people discuss it, though, either. You know, when something like this happens, this need to understand, oh, you know, why and what, what was going on in their life and, and us, you know, dissecting and taking everything apart. Um, once we figure out that it's not terrorism, I have no empathy or sympathy for these people. They're, they're absolute, you know, the rod of human civilization. And there was a huge number of problems that happened with all this. But you can't label these acts as terrorism because by definition, there wasn't a political goal or motive at this time. Uh, we still don't know what Stephen Paddock's motives were. And until we do, we can't call what Stephen Paddock did terrorism. It was tragic as fuck, though. And it was horrific. And it leads to a bigger discussion about gun violence and access to guns and what we can do with our gun laws to better prevent things like this. But 
At the same time, when you look at this issue in Texas, it was a, for all intents and purposes, a clerical error that led to it. Um, you know, it just sucks because it, it takes away from the actual discussion of the issues surrounding this. And when you go to try and say, hey, you know, why isn't nobody calling the Texas shooting a terrorist attack? You fail to get to the real core of the issue. Why is it that um, we try to understand the why behind white enactors of mass violence and we automatically label non-white actors of mass violence? That's the real core thing here. It doesn't. We don't have to call something terrorism to discuss the fact that there is a racial element into the way we discuss mass you know, human suffering incidents enacted by people depending on their skin color. When a shooting happens, depending on what the person looks like, we have very strict and specific labels and strict and specific narratives that happen in that. And those absolutely are discriminatory. They absolutely tend to go across racial lines. And they absolutely do happen. But in this case, it's not terrorism. And so you can't make that discussion on this. You can't make that your argument. This desire to try and label this act as terrorism takes away from it. And you don't want every time multiple people are shot and killed to be you know, tried under terrorism because that's not how it works. It's just not what it is. Um, and it falls flat when you look at some of the other things that happen. Now, again, as I said earlier, Dylan Roof should have been charged with terrorism. 100%. No debate there. And I do feel the reason Dylan Roof wasn't charged with terrorism is because he was a white man. I'm not going to debate or discuss that. I, I 100% agree with you. If that's the stance you take in that instance, I 100% agree. But then at the same time, you had James Jackson, which was a the Baltimore man who went up to New York with the specific goal of killing black people who killed one person. And he was charged with terrorism. So New York State... Uh, when they filed charges against them, they filed racial-based hate crimes and terrorism charges against them. So it's not like there's a refusal to do it when the motive fits it, depending on where it's at. Now, obviously, South Carolina being the not-so-progressive state that it is and having the political leanings it does, there is a general refusal you know, by the public at large to press terrorism charges. And there may not even have been laws in the book that properly applied to it, which I think was the actual case in Dylan's roof shooting. It doesn't dismiss it, doesn't excuse it, doesn't make it right, but that's the reality of the situation. By definition, when you label something terrorism, there has to be a political goal. Dylan Roof was a terrorist. We do not at this point have the information or knowledge to say that Stephen Paddock or Devin Kelly were. And that's it, that's not a debatable issue. It's obvious on what, what was going on here at this point in time. And again, that does not excuse the fact that there is a difference in the narrative and the conversation depending on how a killer looks. And we have to address that. But when you make the goal to label it terrorism, you take away from our ability to have an honest discussion about what does need to happen and what does need to change. Because labeling things that aren't terrorism, terrorism doesn't fix anything for anybody. and It doesn't make the situation better. But once you get to that point and you realize that this is a tragedy, you can start to discuss this um, for what it is and on the multiple levels of justice that failed here because it did. Multiple layers of our justice system failed to properly address this situation. Uh, the Texas shooting is proof that gun laws are only as good as the administrative processes that support them. There's no reason Devin Kelly should have been able to get a firearm. Everything that happened in his life, the history of mental health administration, the criminal charges he had while he was in the Air Force, he should not have been able to get the gun. But gun laws are only as good as the administrative processes. And like anything, if someone has fake charges, they don't get a gun. And someone whose charges don't make it into a database, they do. And that's what happened here. You had an individual who, because of the fact that there was an admin error 
And it's tragic as fuck, right? So basically someone failing to do the proper due diligence to put the right paperwork in to make sure that his criminal charges made it into a national database allowed and enabled this motherfucker to get what he got. Basically what I'm saying is short of an all-out firearms ban, which I'm not a person who supports, there would have been nothing with what happened here that could have prevented this. The admin side of this was not done right. The data that should have been there that prevented him from getting a gun was not into the system. So he was legally able to purchase a firearm. And that's because... Unfortunately, laws are only as good as the administrative systems that support them. If I have laws for mental health stuff, if I have laws that say a criminal charge means you can't get a gun, then if that data isn't in a database somewhere where I can access it and I run your background check and it's not there, there's nothing I can do that's going to prevent you from getting that firearm. And that's the, the sad reality of this. Somebody somewhere didn't do their job and this dude, you know, ruined multiple lives, a tragic you know, incident occurred. He was able to work as a security guard and a lot of shit happened that shouldn't. Um, you know, and I'm sure the full investigation is going to be launched. If the dude who, you know, was in charge of this or was supposed to do this or the people who were supposed to do this didn't do what they're supposed to, I'm pretty sure some heads are going to roll. But when you seek to try and label this as a terroristic act, when you ignore the fact that what happened here was, you know, there's no law really that would have prevented this it does make the discussion different. We have to discuss this on the merits of what it is. Now, that being said, when you seek to try and dismiss the conversation that needs to be had because gun violence is at an all-time high in this country and it's happening everywhere, and I do agree. I mean, if you look at the New York situation where the dude drove his truck, you don't need a gun to kill a bunch of people. We're seeing it all over Europe and all these other places. Now, Given the reason people are resorting to using, you know, vehicle based attacks is because they don't have the same access to firearms we do here in the States. But even still, we saw in France, you know, a bunch of dudes, you know, did the attacks there with guns. So you can have laws, you can have very strict gun laws and, and gun violence will still occur. But there does need to be a conversation about making sure that one, the systems we have and the laws we have in the book are, you know, upheld and, and the processes are supported by good data and the data is available Two that there is something to be said about the mental health systems in this country. And I, I hate to say it, but, you know, I'm interested to see how the Air Force handled this dude's case and what they did or didn't do in regards to it. Because, you know, it, it does seem like somewhere somebody dropped the ball. And, I mean, we have to wait for more information to make a decision on that. But, you know, it, it it's just unfortunate. And on top of that, I just... I sometimes like sit back and I'm like, damn, man, like it seems like the flag is going down to half staff all the time. You know, when I walk into work every day, I walk right past the flag. And so, you know, I, I notice the changes to it, but it's just it's like, damn, can this motherfucker actually just stay up for some period of time? Because we have national tragedy after national tragedy after national tragedy. And our, we kind of just throw our hands up and say, ah, there's nothing we can do about this one. But at some point, you have to come to a conclusion that something has to be done differently, that we have to take some action. And the fact that we can't find any sort of, you know, real policy change or can't find any sort of, you know, moral courage to stand up and do something because of the, you know, I mean, there is a general tone in this country where you are not going to be able to do anything when it comes to guns. And I'm not a proponent of taking away our Second Amendment rights, and I definitely don't think um, that's a solution for it. That being said, I can point to you to a, a video that's on Facebook right now where a Virginia gun shop. Uh, refused to sell a dude a gun just because of how he looked. The owner was right there and said he wouldn't show him, sell him a gun. He's on Facebook Live, basically refusing to sell an individual gun simply because, of, for all intents and purposes, the color of his skin and the way he looked. Racially profiling gun sales. 
So we're happy to deny people their Second Amendment rights when they don't fit a certain um, appearance. And if you look historically at a lot of gun control laws, they've you know only been enacted after people of color decide to arm themselves. So there's a conversation to be had with that. But I wouldn't be so quick to give up your Second Amendment rights out of fear of people doing things. I do think a conversation can be had about having better systems in place to make sure that, you know, the criminally insane and those who commit crimes, that the data gets in there, uh, maybe having access to more databases. I don't know what the solution is, but to pretend that there isn't one and to just have, you know, throw up our hands and say that there's not a conversation to be had on this is, is very, very dismissive of a tragic situation. And if it was a if I was a family member of one of these people who've been killed in these multiple attacks, that just sort of ah shit, nothing we can do reaction from our elected leaders would not be acceptable to me. And it shouldn't be acceptable to anybody. So yeah, I think that's where we're gonna leave that. I mean, at the end of the day, I think we have to realize that gun violence in this country is a problem. Something needs to be done about it. And we need to have an honest conversation and find a bipartisan solution that everyone can get behind that looks to address it in in a capacity that makes a positive change. I don't know what that is, but the fact that we have leaders who can't set aside their partisan viewpoints to try and do something about this, to better preserve life, to reduce the harm and injury to people out there in this country, like, it's fucked up, man. It's, It's really, really fucked up. And we have to demand better. We have to demand better from our elected leaders in general, and that kind of gets me into the the second, you know, overarching topic is the dog whistle politics. For those who aren't familiar, dog whistle politics means that I'm using coded and veiled language as a politician to appeal to certain fears and viewpoints of fringe groups within my party or to say things that I can't openly say, but gets the message across to people with a similar viewpoint and mind frame to understand what I'm really referring to. Um, we saw it really bad in this Virginia gubernatorial race where essentially a ad was put out, um, you know, attributing, uh, MS 13 people to the, you know, the democratic candidate that was running. And then another ad was put out, you know, discussing Confederate monuments and everything else. And if you look at the people defending these, you're talking to very select people, right? This, this fear of, uh, immigrants and everything else. And this, marriage to these confederate monuments that have nothing to do with the confederacy if you look at the history of them is tied to very certain subgroups and it's been very effective um, in multiple elections and it tends to be this new theme that's happening and at one point at some point you have to wonder where do your principles and your politics stop aligning and you stop having to vote for the politics you like because it violates your principles and when do your principles become less important than the politics of the group that best aligns with them because their other principles don't match yours. Because those are the questions we have to ask ourselves. If you're a conservative individual, but you are not a racist, at what point do you disavow your party until it moves away from a racist platform? At what point do you stop voting based on your principles because the party violates core dignities of humans in the way they run their elections? Getting into power by, for all intents and purposes, violating people's constitutional rights either via gerrymandering and, and, you know, minimizing people's votes, denying folks access to the polls, denying people their basic humanity, keeping up monuments in history that uh, in, are in direct, you know, uh, disagreement with the values of this country that are stood to represent the dehumanization and the oppression of a people and are left up as a monument to that. When will you stop voting 
along your party lines when your party has lost its way and has no principles. And the sad thing is, it's not even really that it lost its way. If you look at the value systems and everything else of what's been going on over the past few years, and you look at the history of a lot of these elections, there's always been this sort of theme of using racism as a way in a very, up until recently, very codified way of appealing to certain groups to polarize a base because of these deep-seated racial fears that certain groups of their base have but react very heavily to when they feel threatened and it's being used. Racism has always been in politics, but we are living in a time now where people are being much more overt and the messaging seems to be going back to a time that that we shouldn't be in, in in 2017. And it's become part of their default playbook. If you look at the robocalls that were happening in Atlanta, against one of the candidates. Um, If you look at the shit that's happened in Virginia and then the response to it, somebody was like, well, you got to look at the response ad that the Democratic uh, person ran where you saw the, you know, kids of different race running from the Confederate flag truck. But that's a reality for those people. And I don't think people understand that. It's one thing for me to pander to fears based on information that is not real. It's another for me to make an ad that addresses the fears of people that are real. And that Confederate flag is used to intimidate and induce fear into people. Those monuments are there to stand as a representation of a time where you weren't considered a normal human like everybody else. And they are left there in public squares where people traffic to celebrate heroes, quote unquote, of this time. And they were erected in periods when people were striving to have rights as a way to say, oh, we used to own you. Like you cannot disconnect the history of the Civil War from that. It's un-American as fuck. And to say that this is some preservation of history, whose history? And what history are we trying to preserve? And do we preserve history in museums or do we preserve history with monuments? Because if I recall correctly, one of those places is for history and the other is to celebrate something. I built a street in your name to honor you. I put a monument up to honor you and the accomplishments you made. I put you in a museum so we can discuss the historical consequences of what you did. They're two very different things. And when you conflate the two issues, when you try and say a monument is akin to preserving history, it's a false, it's a false association. That's not the reality of it. They're not tied to each other. They are not the same thing. Monuments celebrate individuals on them. Museums are there to capture our history so that we don't forget things, and so that we have context for what went on. And there's a discussion to be had about history in general, because we don't do a good job of discussing history and allowing the conflict of who people are, because the reality is for everything good, there's always some bad, right? We have no elected leader who's perfect. We have no elected leader who is free from scandal or, you know, shortcoming as an individual. But we don't discuss those things in the early stages of history books. And until you get to the college level, you don't get to hear those conflicts in history or hear the sort of moral quandaries that some figures face. Or just the hero worship of people who are pieces of shit like we have with Columbus. Columbus was a scumbag. Robert E. Lee. Stonewall Jackson, all these people. Look at the history of who they are as individuals. They don't deserve to have a monument put in their name. And when you try and conflate that to us having monuments to presidents of the United States, there's a huge difference. People are complicated. There's complicated history to that. But 
if it wasn't for a civil war that was set up to try and maintain the preservation of a blight in our American history to sustain the status quo of using people as property, these Confederate quote-unquote heroes would never be monumentized. And then the monuments went up in a time to intimidate people when they were fighting for rights. You cannot conflate these two issues. You cannot make a convincing case for it. And when it's interjected into our politics, it is a dog whistle. It is there to speak to a certain subgroup of people. The same folks who came out in their Best Buy Geek Squad uniforms with tiki torches. That's who these messages are for, those type of people. That's the base that's being rallied behind these candidates. And at what point do you, regardless of your political leanings, disavow yourself from your party because they're doing things that violate the core fundamental values of what we stand for as a country? At what point does it become, I will not vote for any candidate in my party who runs on this platform? To tell them that it's not acceptable because it does a disservice to you. You are going to lose. If you are a conservative and a person who has conservative values, you are going to lose a generation of voters by continuing to allow people to win on these platforms. Because for the most part, this younger generation ain't with that shit. I'm not saying that there's not young people who are racist. There are plenty of them. But if you really genuinely believe that your conservative platform is meaningful, you cannot continue to support and vote for people who run on these racist ass platforms. It's not going to work. At some point, you have to allow your principles to override your politics. So let's talk about these state elections, man. So there's a couple of big ones that's going on right now. Um, the New Jersey governor's race is pretty much in the bag. Uh, Chris Christie has pretty much failed to uh, has been such a pile of shit that nobody wants to vote for a Republican in New Jersey. Uh, I was looking at some of the exit polls today, and I think like 60 percent of people were basically saying that, yeah, um, I do not. You know, I'm, I'm doing this because I don't want anything like, you know, as a referendum on the way the presidential race is. Um, the Virginia race is much more contentious. Um, and again, the Virginia race is so contentious because if you look at the history of Virginia as a state and some of its political leanings, and if you look at the dog whistle politics that's happened and the very heavily racialized politics that have been going on and this sort of appeal and pandering to the, the far right, alt-right type viewpoints in that state, uh, by the Republican candidate who, you know, for all intents and purposes is a long-term lobbyist, you know, is about in bed with every sort of you know, less than ethical corporation you can think of uh, and has a lot of money being injected into the race uh, to support him. Yeah. So we're going to be watching that closely. I think the polls closed about eh, about an hour ago in Virginia. So we're going to start seeing those polls come in. Atlanta had a big mayoral race. Um, it's probably going to end up in a runoff. Uh, Kasim Reed reaches term limit. Um, there's a couple of front runners in there. Um, and even then, there's some racial politics injected into that. There were some robocalls made to certain uh, white affluent districts uh, to s spike fears uh, against one candidate who's currently the front runner and was endorsed by the current mayor. So it's just a period of time to pay attention to what's going on in the world. Um, hopefully, if you live in Virginia, if you live in Atlanta metro area, if you live anywhere and you know, you're registered in your state and your state elections where today you got a chance to get out and vote. Um, what happens tonight will be a referendum on what kind of politics are going to dominate the structure of elections in the coming years over the next four years.
if a certain tone, if a certain uh, environment succeeds, you can expect to see more and more of those type of candidates. What we already saw in Alabama, we already saw in other places where a certain breed of politician is allowing to make their way to Washington, allowing to make their way to the state house, um, allowing to make their way to the White House. We have a problem on our hands, people. We will be regressing as a nation back to a place that we should not be. And we really haven't come that far from where we once were. So we're not too far from going back to places that a lot of people are ashamed of and that we should all be ashamed of as a country. We owe it to our future generations. We owe it to ourselves. We owe it to our own values to be engaged and do something about what we see out here, to be actively involved and clearly and loudly state that we do not support racists. We do not support alt-right viewpoints. We do not support returning to a Jim Crow type state. We do not support these people running our country. And we have to say it loud and clear. And if we fail to do so, there's no telling what the direction and the course of this nation will be. This, you know, polite politics that we've all engaged in where we listen to our coworkers and our friends say veiled racist bullshit or, you know, things that we heavily disagree with and we just kind of let it ride. We have to come out and vocally disagree. I'm not saying within your work center do it, but either end the conversations or, you know, just you, you can't allow people to think that these viewpoints dominate the social sphere out here. We have to let people know, we have to let our elected leaders know that we will not support these messages. And if we fail to do that, that's going to be the landscape of politics in this country. We will return, you know, and again, I hate to say it, we haven't come that far from Jim Crow era politics in this country. We're not that far removed from it. And our policies are not that much more progressive. And a lot of people forget that. And we're very close to, with the way things are going, allowing ourselves to return to that place. And you can say what you want, you can believe what you want, you can say political correctness is dominating this landscape. And in some cases it might be. But what we can't do is allow people to make it into our representative places that hold these views and values. We owe it to future generations of this country to demand better of our political leaders. And until we do so, we're going to get what we deserve. Our apathy will be our downfall as a country, as a people.